Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 100. Joining us is international best-selling author Seth Godin. Seth Godin is the author of 21 best-selling books that have been translated into more than 40 languages. Seth has written such legendary books as Purple Cow, Lynchpin, The Dip, This Is Marketing, The Practice. Seth's two TED Talks are some of the most watched of all time. He is the founder of the Alt-MBA, the Akimbo Workshops, the podcasting workshop that Seth runs along with Alexandra De Palma is where I learned the podcast. Seth writes about the post-industrial revolution, the ways ideas spread, marketing, and leadership. Seth also writes one of the most read blogs in the world at seth.blog. So excited to get Seth back on the show. Seth is here today to discuss his latest book, The Song of Significance. We go deep into leadership, the difference between leading and managing, how to build a winning culture, and why no human is a resource. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with international best-selling author, the one and only Seth Godin. And remember, life is built, not born. Seth Godin, welcome back to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Episode 110 squared, one-tenth of a thousandth. Well done. Oh, that's awesome. Seth, you last joined us on episode 79. We spoke about creativity, overcoming fear, and saving the planet. You joined us today. I'm so excited to speak about your new book that launches this week, The Song of Significance, A New Manifesto for Teams. I want to ask you about the book, a couple of concepts on leadership and management. Before we do, I've heard you say in the past that you only write a book when you have no choice but to write it. How did you decide that you had no choice to write The Song of Significance? Well, since the last time we spoke, there's been a lot of trauma, dislocation, challenges for many people. And in 2022, I looked around, I saw the horrible behavior of billionaires who were shaming their employees, firing them at a moment's notice. I saw an economy that was shifting. I saw the death of industrialism. And then I met somebody who was a beekeeper, and he talked to me about the behavior of the bees and the song of increase. He introduced me to Jacqueline Freeman and her book. And when I saw the juxtaposition of how the bees have figured out how to work in community and to live the lives they live, and then I saw the pain and dislocation so many humans have signed up for, I realized we need a significant shift to happen. Not a shift that a blog post or a video could do, but that we needed a way to talk to each other about this. And the book did not take very long to write because apparently I'd been thinking about it for a long time. So you write that this is a management book for a new era, an era that's so different that it's not about management at all. It's about leadership. So can you describe how would you differentiate management versus leadership? So managers are important. 
But managers use authority to gain obedience. They use measurement to get us to do what we did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. We built school by and for managers. Managers need us to ask, will this be on the test, right? Leadership is different. Leadership is voluntary. Leadership is unknown. Leadership is the liminal space between here and there. There are some managers who lead. There are some leaders who manage, but they're totally separate transactions. Title of the book, The Song of Significance. Why do you think so many people seek or need significance? I have never met someone who didn't need it. We're human beings. We don't wake up in the morning saying, I wonder how I can get someone to tell me exactly what to do today and then yell at me when I don't. That I survey 10,000 people in 90 countries and I asked them about the best job they ever had. And I gave them a whole bunch of choices, including I got paid a lot, I didn't have to work very hard. And the ones that came up over and over again were always the same. I got treated with respect. I accomplished more than I thought I would. I got to work with people who were doing something important. Those are the definitions of significance. And mm. it's not surprising. What is surprising is that every day we go to work and do something other than that. You write in this book about the commitments that bosses and workers need to make to each other. What are those commitments and why are they important? Well, so I made a, a little pamphlet that I'm giving out by the thousands so that people can hand it to one another. And basically, it comes down to let's get real or let's not play. Right? I promise that if you show up to work to make a difference, I won't waste your time in meetings and with stupid measurements. If you promise to tell me the truth with respect, I'll do the same for you. That we need to have a different kind of engagement with the people. You know, I know that you're into fitness and sport and everything else. The fact is, when someone spends their time happily at a dojo, happily engaging in some sort of physical activity, they're not doing it because they're getting paid. And when someone hires a coach, they don't want the coach to, A, tell them what they want to hear, or B, tell them what to do. What they want is someone to help them figure out where they want to go and help them get there. Mm -hmm. So those very things that we look for in our spare time, we look for them because they are what make us alive. So why don't we do that at work? Yeah, good point. How about you just brought up a four-letter word to many people in corporate America, meetings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's a question. Are meetings the cause of so many of our problems at work or the symptom? What do you think? I think it's pretty clear it's a symptom. I think that particularly if you work remotely, all those meetings you're having, they could be replaced by a memo. I just, I'm working with a team of five people around the world. I just made a four minute video and I posted it for them. They can watch it when they want to watch it. They can watch it twice. They can watch it half a time. They can speed it up. I don't need to see them paying attention because I trust them. And so the endless meeting where everyone's trying to get someone else to take responsibility, where the boss is taking attendance, where you're just sitting there bored out of your mind, that's a symptom of management. You touched on this a few moments ago. How does a leader know, say they're trying to get it right, how does the leader know when they need to have a meeting versus, like you said, just send a memo or a video? How do you know the difference? Well, I'm pretty lucky. I don't go to meetings. 
And the reason I don't go to meetings is because I have conversations all the time. Right now, you and I are having a conversation. You can't figure out what to say next until you hear what I said. Conversations are critical. The idea of a meeting as a place where one person in real time is trying to preserve their precious time and maintain their power, I don't do those. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. How about also, too, you write in the book that leadership is distributed across the organization. And also, like leadership does not have to start at the top. Sometimes the best leadership is not from the top, it's from the bottom up or in the middle. Here's a question. How can someone lead without authority? Like, hey, Seth, I'm not the boss. I'm not even near the boss. I'm on the bottom. I'm in the middle. How can I lead, but I have no authority? How would you answer that? Well, there is no bottom. There's only a bottom in the managerial hierarchy. There is no bottom in the leadership hierarchy. And leading with authority is even harder because it's easy to become a manager in those moments. That when you realize that all you have is your passion, your voice, and your commitment, it's easier to lead because you have to voluntarily have people decide to follow you. And, you know, if we think about, you know, a giant corporation like General Electric under Thomas Edison, most people who worked there never met Thomas Edison. They weren't, this wasn't about how does Thomas Edison tell you what to do? It's how do you create the conditions to create value? And years later, when Jack Welch took over, he decided he would be a bully. And that works for a while. And then it stops working. Yeah. Also, you speak to page 19 thinking in the book. Can you speak a little bit about that? So this is a breakthrough for me. When we built the Carbon Almanac, I was a volunteer. I worked every day on it for a year and a half. 300 people in 40 countries joined me. Eventually, we grew to 1,900 people. There wasn't one person on the team who knew exactly how to make an almanac. And yet, in less than 150 days, we made a 97,000-word illustrated, fact-checked, illuminated, footnoted book and handed it in a week ahead of schedule. How did we do that? Well, we knew there was going to be a page 19 in the book. But we also knew that not one person knew how to make page 19. <laughs> so page 19 thinking is start, write an article, edit an article, illustrate an article, fact check an article. Whatever somebody does, bring it forward and say, here, I made this, and then challenge other people to make it better. That's the opposite of the way management works. Another thing that caught me in the book is leaders, you write, leaders create enrollment. How do you find enrollment and how does a leader know if they got it? Okay, so it's tricky because in public school, enrollment is means something the opposite. We're not talking about required to attend. We're talking about voluntarily choosing to attend. When people enroll in a cause, the people who are running it don't have to tell anybody what to do because folks have decided to get on this bus. So the real job of a leader is not to figure out how to tell people what to do. It's how to help people get what they wanted all along. So go find people who want to go on that journey and then get out of their way. Find people. I guess that's the key, finding the people that want to go on that journey. Do you agree with one of the books I read that they said, if you hire the right person, 
90% of your work's behind you. If you hire the wrong person, 90% of your work's in front of you. Is, it, is that on the point? What do you think? I think that's a great quote. I'm not sure there's something called the right person. Okay. I think each of us, at least once in our life, has been passionate, committed, creative. So the hard work is, yeah, if you find someone who's already like that in your setting, it makes it so much easier. But they can become that person. So that's what we're seeking, to create the conditions for that kind of person to thrive. Yeah, yeah, that's the leader's job to do that. You spoke about creativity a moment ago. One of the blurbs that just burned into my brain, which I never heard before, and it just changed the way I thought of it from the practice, your last book, Shipping Creative Work, you put creativity is an act of leadership. And leadership like creativity is doing something that may not work, right? So if you're doing something that you know is going to work, would you call it management? And then like, then if you're doing something that might not work, it's leadership. How would you describe the two? Right. So if you go to McDonald's, there is no doubt you're going to get your French fries. <laughs> the work of the person at McDonald's is to get you the French fries hot and cheap, not figure out if French fries are possible. So leadership says, I'm not sure, but let's try. Management says, we are totally sure. I have a stopwatch. Here we go. Yeah. I said, how best can leaders create the conditions for their team to do work that matters? And then I guess a follow-up would be like, how can someone tell if you're working on a project, how can you really tell that work, if that's the work that matters? So like a litmus test you can do? I don't have a convenient shortcut for you, Joe. What I can tell you is if you've ever coached a soccer team, or if you've ever dealt with a troop of scouts, or you've ever tried to assemble people in a non-work setting, you can tell when you are hitting your numbers as a leader. That's the feeling we're looking for. Avoiding authority, avoiding blame, and instead saying, here's our problem, here's our people, how are we going to solve it? Yeah. If you answer that question, you're probably on the right path. You see so many so-called, quote, successful organizations. You even look at Jim Collins' books way back in the day where he holds these companies up like this is like good to great, but you see them fail eventually. Or I guess my question to you would be, what are the causes that make successful organizations fail? What have you seen? I think that I can give you three examples. The first one is the world changes. So Western Union was successful. And when they had the chance to buy AT&T, they said, who would want a telephone? And they walked away. So, you know, the same thing is true with lots of technological shifts. The second one is the hubris of thinking that you are right and you will always be right. And I would say that that is happening on Twitter right now. And the third one is the dead weight that comes from scale, that comes from hiring lots and lots of people because you can afford to, but then the very thing that let you become who you are goes away. When the world changes, and this is a quote from the book, when the world changes, management always fails. And you write, you can't manage your way out of change, you have to lead. And then you gave a great, I'll leave it to you, you gave a great analogy, I'm a big hockey fan. 
even though my Flyers haven't won a Stanley Cup in like 200 years. Leadership is like hockey, all right? Because you know you're going to get hit. You got to go to where the puck's going, not where it is, right? And then you know you're going to get hit. You step on that ice. You know you're getting hit. You're a good guy. You're a bad guy. You're tall. You're small. You're fast. You're slow. You're going to get hit, and you got to go where the puck goes. Can you can you take it from there? Well, you may have noticed I broke my nose playing hockey. <laughs> broke I broke my arm playing hockey. I broke my spirit playing hockey. That's why I don't play hockey anymore, because there's different kinds of getting hit. <laughs> and what I discovered about the kind of leadership I do is it's not personal if something you build doesn't work. You just found another way for it not to work yet. So you bring something to the world, you say, here, I made this, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, right? Whereas in hockey, if it doesn't work, now you have blood, and I'm just not, I'm just not that into that. <laughs> and no teeth, maybe a few less teeth. Oh my gosh. You spoke about things not working. Sometimes things aren't working, say in the sales world, we call that a high-need employee. Let's talk about high-need employees or maybe even high-need customers. That customer that was once a year that calls you like they, they're your top customer, they're not even your top 50. What happens, say, when we focus a lot of our time, energy, or even money on high-need customers? And How's that go? That's a great riff. It's not directly on point, but let me try it. Let me talk about the customers first. In my experience with small business people who I know and care about, the single best way for them to make their days better is to say to the high-need customer, thank you for your faith in me, for your confidence. Here is the phone number of a business down the street. They have the resources to help you better than I do. That when you fire your most time-consuming customers, you are freeing up your time to work on the people who will actually make a difference. And then for high-need employees, I think that there's two parts to that. The first part is this salesperson who needs so much help, is it because they don't have good taste and don't know what it is to be a good salesperson? Or is it that they don't want to do the work necessary to be a good salesperson? If it's the first one, once you have enrollment, they can learn. And maybe they need to go to school or maybe you can teach them. But if it's the second one, the best thing you can do for everybody is have them leave because they don't want to go where you're going. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot these days about the status quo, maybe disrupting the status quo, changing the status quo. Here's something that I, I struggle with a little bit is, and I know a lot of people do, like, how can a leader? consistently try to go after and try to change the status quo without becoming thought of as like a rebel or like a problem employee or wow, this person's more trouble than they're worth. Like you see a potential better way in a big organization and you want to tweak something, not do anything illegal or crazy, just you know, like, you know, what? I see a better way and you're too out of the box and you feel like sometimes you don't belong. Like what does a leader do with that where they want change, but they don't want to disrupt enough where you're seen as the rebel? I think where you're getting hung up is on the word better. If you think it's better, but the organization values something else, you have a mismatch of enrollment. So if you work at a restaurant that hasn't changed its menu in 30 years, and you want to add gluten-free pasta, <laughs> you are doing it because you believe the people you work with are there to increase profit, and satisfy more customers. But maybe that's not why they're there. 
maybe they are on the journey of saying, I'm here to do what I did yesterday without having to think about it very much. So your definition of better and their definition of better are different. So for me, leadership doesn't just go, quote, down. It goes all around. Mm -hmm. And it's, if we could accomplish this result, is that something people here want to do? That result might be this group of customers, which we never had before, start coming in. This group of customers who is leaving, stop leaving. Our profits go up. Our retention goes Like, tell me what the output is going to be and get my buy-in that that's what you want to have happen. And then, and only then, can I say, if we do A, I am asserting B will happen. Now, you told me you wanted B. So we can have an argument about whether A will get me B, but we're not going to have an argument about B because you just told me B was my job. And this is where we run into trouble with big corporations because people don't understand the big picture. So I'll give you an example. When I was at Yahoo, they only had five vice presidents and the stock price was going up $3 a day. So I was working with people who had 100,000 or 200,000 stock options. These people were making a half a million dollars a day. And I went to them and I said, I have this great idea for a new thing and I can prove it's going to work. It's going to make a big difference in Yahoo's future. And my boss said, quote, cool it. Because he wanted nothing to change until his options vested. That's what he was keeping track of. I was saying, what's better for the users? I was imagining that five short years later, Google would take over and 10 years later, Yahoo would be gone. But that's not what he was keeping track of. Mm -hmm. He was keeping track of how do we not spook the stock market? So you got to get clear who's enrolled in which journey. Makes sense. Wow. $3 a day, half a million dollars a day is not a bad gig. <laughs> Keep everything the same. I'll, let me sign up. How about you, you spoke about culture and enrollment, and you write in the book, you say culture amplifies enrollment. Now, here's a question. What are some of the best ways to build a great culture? I guess, what is culture? And then how do you build a great one as a leader? Culture is the answer to a very simple question. What are things like around here? And people are watching you all the time. If you have a sales rep who gets good numbers but is a bully, and you don't fire that person, you've just announced what the culture is at your company. Mm. If you have meetings, and when someone asks a stupid question, you make fun of them for asking a stupid question, you've just announced what the culture is like around here. Mm -hmm. People like us do things like this. What's it like around here? Who gets the good parking space? Who gets a smile? Who gets the chance to do a new project? Mm -hmm. That becomes your culture. How do we do things around here? That's basically how you define culture. That's great. And if you reward that, maybe that bully salesperson that just knocks is like the bull in the, the glass factory and just knocks everything down. Short term, that's great. So if you're that person waiting for that $3 a day and you just want you're vesting in two weeks, that's your guy. You want a room full of those people. But then if you like you said, you're worried about five years from now. What Google's going to do to Yahoo or whatever, you don't, that's that you want to take that person out, take the short term loss and be way better 10 years from now, right? Yep. So it makes sense. 
I know your time is tight. I have I have a little celebrity Q&A from guests of my show. Where's the celebrity? <laughs> celebrity. Let's say noted. There's celebrities in my world. And so we're going to start off with question number one from Jay Papazan, co-author of The One Thing with Gary Keller. He was a guest of the show. Big fan of your work. He says, Joe, I would love to know how Seth defines the word leadership. Gary and I contrast leading and managing. Most books are actually about management. Gary and I believe leadership is teaching people how to think so they can do what they need to do when they need to do it, and then they get what they want when they want it. So I guess this question is, how do you define leadership? Word for word. Pick what he just said, add what you and I have just been talking about. I'm ready for the next question. Awesome. Jay, there you go. Second question is from Jeffrey Gittimer, the author of the Sales Bible and the Little Red Book. I haven't talked to Jeffrey in a long time. He's a fan. His quote to you, his question to you is, Seth, you had major responsibility at Yahoo. What was your leadership secret to maintaining a loyal following, but still implementing all of your ideas? Jeffrey's a big loyalty guy. So like, how do you maintain loyalty while still implementing all of your ideas? Okay. I had almost no responsibility at Yahoo. And I'm not going to take credit for something I didn't do. I came up with some really good ideas at Yahoo. The biggest idea I had in terms of loyalty and permission was we had the chance to buy Netscape for $2 billion. And at the time, Netscape had 60% market share in browsers and Microsoft was catching up. And I said, and Netscape cost $20 to buy each copy. That's why their market share was fading because Microsoft was free. I said, it's super simple. Let's buy Netscape and make it free and only do one thing to it. Change the homepage to Yahoo and make it so you can't change the homepage. So that way, every day, every single time anyone turned on the internet, Yahoo would be the homepage of the internet. Mm-hmm. And the people who I worked with who were in the business of selling ads and everything else were like, we don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, fine, but you'll see. And that's why Google built Chrome so that Google could be the homepage of the internet. Because when you are the homepage, the thing people do when they start their day, you can build something of value on top of that. That's great. Here's one from a successful local business person named David Kaplan. He's the chief operating officer at Watchbox. They're the largest seller of luxury watches in the world. His question to you is, Seth, what's the biggest challenge that remote work, the pandemic, and economic instability has imposed on leaders? And how are good leaders responding? Right. So bad leaders who are actually managers are responding by taking attendance treating remote people brutally and imagining that they're out getting their dry cleaning. What leaders are doing is saying asynchronous can be a gift. And if we can get clear about the change we seek to make, we can do better. But too many big organizations don't keep track of the change they make. They keep track of the job they do. And those are different things. Last question. This is from our buddy, Derek Sivers. Uh, hey, Derek. Derek Derek says, Seth, a question about who to hire. For someone like you that has many fans, it must be tempting to hire from among your most enthusiastic followers, since these are people that have already been drawn to your mission and work. 
what are your experiences or thoughts on hiring from this group of people versus the rest of the world? So my hiring strategy has evolved. I used to believe that I was great at interviewing for a certain sensibility. I would interview people for five minutes and figure out if they were my kind of person or not. I don't do that anymore. Partly because, as you can see, this is my whole team. Mm -hmm. I am much more interested in projects than employees. But when I do projects now, my philosophy is to only work with people I've worked with before, which seems like a paradox, but it's not. Because what you get to do is give people you haven't worked with a project to do. And that's so much more effective than an interview. Because mm -hmm. all you're testing when you interview people is are they good at interviewing? Yeah. Whereas if you work with someone on a project, now you know how it is that they do what they do. My other rule is if I ever have a chance to work with someone named Derek, the answer is always yes. <laughs> that sounds like a good rule. That is awesome. So Seth, I just want to wrap up here with a quote from you did a keynote at the Nordic Business Forum a few years back. And uh, here's a quote that I just took. That I just think wraps everything up so good. Seth, you said, the world is changing faster than it ever has before, and we can choose to lead those changes or simply follow them. This is your opportunity to do something that matters. This is a chance of a lifetime, our lifetime. The guest is Seth Godin. The episode is number 100, and the book being released everywhere, Books Are Sold, is the Song of Significance. Seth, I'd like to thank you for joining us and good luck with the book. I hope it's your 21st bestseller. I'm sure it will be. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. Such a privilege to talk to you. Stay well, man. That was well done. All right. I got to go, man. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.